into a new topic tonight. Uh, I would be happy to stay in the story-shaped world for months or years even and go all the way through all of the Narnia stories and unpack them because there are such riches in there. But I hope if you have not read Narnia since you were a child or a teenager that you will go back and reread. Uh, I promise you it will be a blessing if you do that. But some of this uh, story-shaped world is important for understanding Lewis's approach to apologetics, which is what we're going to be moving into for the next couple of weeks. So I just wanted to remind us a little bit about where we have been. And the first part is this idea that we all live in a story, that we all make assumptions about what's true, what is reality, what shapes our reality, all of those kinds of things. And there are two major narratives that are out there. One is the secular, secularizing meta narrative that there is no God, there is no supernatural, this life is all there is, you only go around once, so grab for all the gusto you can get, um, versus the spiritual worldview that God made you, you are in his image, you have meaning and purpose and gifts, and this world that fallen is also a place of wonder that is full of pointers to the kingdom of God. And we have a choice every day, every moment really, about which one of those stories we're going to live in. But Lewis says part of our problem is that we are spellbound. We are literally enchanted, kind of like by the evil witch, if you want to imagine secularism as an evil witch, and that we have to have our spell broken to be able to understand the truth of the kingdom of God. We have to learn how to see again. We have to, it's as if we put on glasses after we've been blind and didn't realize how blind you were until the glasses were put on and our sight was straightened out. So one of the things that Lewis does is to talk about how story enables us to fully experience what these uh, worlds are like and that Narnia lets us get right inside the story and inhabit it where we feel emotions, we feel wonder, we feel joy based on what's happening. So he's not just telling us what Christians believe, but he's showing us experientially by inviting us into this story. So it's a remarkable accomplishment. And one of the things, we didn't really even talk about this. I could do a whole nother class on this, but I won't. Um, one of the things that's remarkable about Lewis's skill as a writer is the Chronicles of Narnia are very short. They're short works. And yet he is able to create through this very uh, precise use of language an entire world in our imaginations. He's so deft at the way he does that. And I said last week when I talked a little bit about this that you know, it would have taken Tolkien volumes to do the same thing that Lewis does just in one chapter. So it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable gift. Um, one of the things that is perhaps the greatest achievement in the story is the character of Aslan. And we talked about how Lewis didn't like the idea that Narnia was an allegory because he's very precise in his definitions. And in an allegory, you should have an exact one-to-one -one correspondence with each character, each scene, all of that. And he said it's not like that. It's what he called a supposal. Suppose that there was this wondrous world that had been created 
that evil entered and God had to save it. And if that world was Narnia, what would he do? How would he save that world? And Aslan is the answer to that. And he is this amazing, compelling fictional figure that you long to meet when you read the stories. And so it is, it is really a beautiful thing. And when you look at the way that Aslan relates to each of the characters in the story, you see that they're each transformed by meeting Aslan. But they're not transformed into something totally other. It says if as they meet Aslan and spend time with him and focus on him, their true selves, which are imprisoned in sin and all the layers of garbage that the world puts on you, their true selves break forth. And so Aslan transforms them by liberating who they were meant to be in the first place. And so they don't all become alike. They become more different, but they become more fully who they were meant to be. Uh, one of the things that is fun about this from the uh, apologetic standpoint, has anybody in here ever read Feuerbach? Okay, good. Don't. Uh, <laughs> Feuerbach was a predecessor to Nietzsche, and he's very, he's a very grim, very depressing, atheistic uh, philosopher. But Feuerbach was very, very popular in the late 19th century, um, and he was somebody that greatly influenced Sigmund Freud. And so when you take the two of them together and you have this idea that Freud came up with that God, the celestial father, is just a wish fulfillment, a projection uh, that everyone desires to have the perfect parent and no one does. So we wish this and that's all that there is. God is not real. But Lewis turns that on its head and says, well, what if the idea that there is no God is wish fulfillment? for people who want to be able to just do whatever they want without any interference. So he, he shows how it cuts both ways. Uh, but part of, the, part of the thing that we talked about at the end last week was that one of the great accomplishments of Aslan is that you see over and over in the stories how Aslan is good with a capital G, but he is also wild with a capital W and not tame. And McGrath in chapter four, which we haven't read chapter four, please do, it's so good. But one of the things McGrath talks about is that one of our problems in modern Christianity is that because we live in a rationalistic, reductionistic age, we have put God more or less into a cage of what we can understand. And so we like, it's kind of like having a pet God. And we've got him in this cage, and the, he says the thing that's so great about Aslan as Aslan's not in anybody's cage. You never quite, you're, you know he's good, you know he's beautiful, you secretly want to ride on his back, but at the same time, he's scary. He's scary, not in the sense of evil scary, but just because he's so powerful. So that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind, and I love this last sentence, it's a quotation from McGrath. A God that is reduced to what reason can cope with is not a God that can be worshipped. And I think there's a lot of truth in that that our age misses out on. So, shifting gears to apologetics. Um, apologetics is one of those words that a lot of people get very confused by because it sounds like you're apologizing. Uh, and I don't want to 
say that it's bad to apologize if you're in the wrong, but apologetics has absolutely nothing to do with apologizing for bad behavior. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. It's what a defense attorney would do. So apologia means defense, and apologetics is the field of study or endeavor that it attempts to provide a rational uh, defense of the Christian faith, a, a defense of the Christian faith that is based on evidence and on clear thinking about things. So not just emotions. So of course this comes from 1 Peter 3.15, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in, within you. And that's something that's important for us as Christians. And we're gonna talk a little bit about why in Lewis's view this was so unbelievably important and you can make a pretty good argument that Lewis is the father of modern apologetics, that up until the 20th century, there was perhaps not as much a need for apologetics because a lot of the academy and a lot of uh, the structures of the culture were Christian. But in the 20th century, that began to change very rapidly where people's assumptions were no longer the assumptions of the Christian faith. So part of this uh, in apologetics is the idea of being able to give a reason, to be able to explain, and to not be afraid to enter into conversation. Now, for those of us who are Southerners, this is a little bit difficult because most of us had either my great aunt or Mary Ann's grandmother or someone else who would say these things over and over again that were drilled into us, such as, do not discuss sex, politics, or religion, <laughs> ever. And so if you have that drilled into you, if someone brings up religion or sex or politics, um, your first inclination is to adroitly change the subject. But that is not a scriptural view. And we're not to go around banging people over the head with the Bible. That is not what apologetics is about. But we are to give a winsome defense. Uh, one of the things that Jesus said is that the way that the world will know you are my disciples is by, does anybody remember? Love. Yes, good. The love that you have for one another. It's not supposed to be by our judgmentalism or our prejudices or anything else. It's supposed to be by the love that we have for one another. And one of the things that is a great failure of our modern Christian world is that when you survey people and ask them for free word association, the first thing that comes to mind with Christian, the very first word is judgmental. Second word is narrow-minded. So we have some work to do in this area, and Lewis can help us. Well, Jesus did say the gate was narrow. Yes, the gate is narrow. The gate is narrow, but he didn't um, lead with that. Yes. So, and as we talked about earlier in class, there are two factors that were hugely influential in Lewis's conversion. The first one, and probably the most important one, was deep friendships that he had with people where they talked about real things, where they cared enough about each other to talk about things that mattered. 
and we talked a lot about this earlier, that part of the problem in our culture is that people actually have conversations about the Kardashians. And that, you know, it just is it's sort of a symptom of everything that's wrong with our culture. And people will spend time with their friends talking about the Kardashians. And it's like, why would you ever do that? And so the when you look at Lewis's friendships, you know, they were not boring. They were full of vitality, but there was intellectual vigor that was going on. There was discussion that was going on, and it was all underlaid with a deep commitment to one another. So they were not afraid to talk about real things, and they were not afraid to disagree. They knew that they loved each other, but they could talk about things and reach opposite conclusions and still stay in relationship instead of just writing each other off. Yeah, we live in the age of, well, I'm going to block you and unfriend you. And that is not the way this works. So these friendships are hugely influential. Lewis, a very evangelical atheist, and yet through the influence of his friends, he was completely, and the Holy Spirit most importantly, he was completely turned around. And just think about if you were a friend of C.S. Lewis's, and you see this guy who's brilliant, who's an evangelical atheist, would you feel like sharing your faith with him? We're called to. We are called to, but it would be, you know, I'd be looking for a lot of excuses. I was like, that is, that's Chef Davis's job to do that, not mine. <laughs> you know, so... But the point is that we are called to do that. We're called to have the kinds of relationships that enable us to talk about these things. And not, a lot of times when people think about sharing their faith, they think about buttonholing strangers. And that's not the approach that we're gonna be talking about here. But Lewis was all about building bridges, building relationship bridges, earning the right to be heard, and then sharing the truth of the gospel using analogies and other ways that people can understand. So friendship is the first thing. The second thing is Christian writers who really helped Lewis to understand things that he, he felt, but he couldn't put into words. And so through reading people like G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald and others, Lewis is, uh, one of the things he said is that his imagination was baptized, which I think is a, a great phrase. But that kind of reading helped him to be able to articulate what it was he believed and why he believed it. So fairly obviously, these might be two things that we might want to consider. Might want to consider to what extent are we talking about and sharing our faith in our relationships and probably a precursor to that question, do we actually have friends? Are we investing <laughs> Are we investing the time to actually have friendships? Because if you don't have friendships, that doesn't really work. So that's an important part. And then the second thing is, are we reading things that help us to understand our faith more deeply? And I commend you for being in this class because that's part of what we're trying to do here is to understand our faith more deeply. So by doing things like this, by reading, that will help you. But Lewis talks a lot about the fact that the apologetic task is urgent. And the reason that it's urgent is that the way that all of us came to the faith 
is because someone who was older from a previous generation shared that faith with someone in a way that it eventually came to us. What if all those people, what if Netflix had been invented 100 years ago and people had spent the entire lifetime on their couch with Netflix and Uber food, you know? It's just kind of scary to think about. But the idea is that those people did that intentionally or not, and the result is that the gospel came to our generation. And the question is, who is bringing the gospel to our culture? Because we are the ones. We're, you know, we can't be looking for somebody else to go do it. We are the ones. And if you let an entire generation go, obviously that's not good for the propagating of the gospel. And McGrath, I think, says something helpful when he's talking about apologetics. He says there are three parts to it. One is defending the faith. And the first part of that is just showing that it's rational. It's not stupid to believe in Christianity. The second thing is commending the faith, talking about how faith actually works, unpacking some of the terminology that, like, if you say atonement to somebody, they're not going to have a clue what you're talking about. But being able to talk in words and phrases that people will understand. And then the last one is translating taking all of what the Christian faith is and translating it, well, how does that live out in the real world? And one of the things that is really interesting in our culture is that most people think that Christians are stupid, that people that are Christians are sort of the, the less educated, less sophisticated, um, people who really, if they knew better, they wouldn't believe that poor little things. You know, it's a very condescending sort of attitude. And that's one thing that is very different here than even if you were to go to Oxford and Cambridge today where there's still plenty of atheists, but there are also a lot of brilliant Christians that are there. So there's not so much of this, well, Christians are stupid thing. But I will tell you, particularly among um, students, people that are high school age, there's a very strong perception that people who are Christians are stupid and they just haven't looked at the evidence or they don't know any better. And so one of our big tasks as Christians is to try to change that um, by showing that that's wrong. Um, not necessarily by showing that how smart we are, uh, but by helping point to people who are brilliant, who are leaders in the intellectual world, who are deeply Christian as well. So I'm not going to ask you to answer that last question. What kind of apologist are you? Uh, but it's a good question to think about. And it's kind of like what we're talking about in the church service. To whom is God sending you? Who are the people that are in your sphere of influence who don't know Jesus that God might be calling you to invest in those people? And that doesn't mean that you're going to get like overnight conversion kind of things. It takes long investment in people. And sometimes you never see the fruit of that, but we're called to make that investment, not to just sit on our couch. So translating into the cultural vernacular, Lewis is such an interesting example of this uh, because as we've talked about, Lewis was a genius and he was at Oxford. And 
just even in reading some of his more academic <coughs> essays, you feel like you've got to have your dictionary right there at hand because his vocabulary is so stratospherically above most of ours that it's very hard to understand. So then you think about Lewis trying to talk to some everyday normal guy and you think, how in the world would he be able to do that? And what he realized was that he had a problem, that he was a prisoner of his intellect and his vocabulary. And the way that he realized this is that, and this is a remarkable thing, um, it shows how culture has shifted. But as World War II started, he received two very important invitations. And they were invitations that you really could not uh, decline. It's almost like being asked by the queen to do something. The first one of those was from Dean Matthews, who's the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, one of the most eminent clergymen. Um, the dean of St. Paul's is practically on the level with the Archbishop of Canterbury in terms of prestige in England. And he asked Lewis in the early years of World War II if he would be willing to go around, leave the comfort of Oxford, and go around and speak at all of the RAF bases in England, the Royal Air Force bases, and to share his faith with those soldiers. And the government was all behind this, which is a remarkable thing to think about. But Lewis felt obligated that he should do this. But he was absolutely terrified to go do it because a lot of the people in the RAF, some of the officers were people that were university educated, but a lot of them, remember this is in England where there's still big class distinctions. A lot of them are lower class, rough around the edges guys. And he thought, what do I have to say to them? And remember in the early 1940s, the death rate, if you were in the Royal Air Force, was 46%. 46%. So these people are thinking pretty seriously about life and death issues. And Lewis felt the weight of that. And so the first lecture he gave was at Abington Air Force Base right outside of Oxford. And he thought that it was an abject disaster. And that he went in and he talked and the people were like... <laughs> so he formed a little group of friends to help him learn to speak a different language, to be able to communicate in a way that would work with these Air Force people. And he ended up becoming very, very popular. And right after he got that invitation, he got the invitation from the BBC uh, to do these broadcast talks that ultimately became mere Christianity. Uh, but again, he had to learn to communicate in a way that went to a broad audience, not an academic audience, not students that had come out of Eton and Harrow and Westminster School, but people that had a second-rate education and wouldn't know vocabulary that was full of big words. So Lewis went through sort of a transformation, and you can see that transformation if you read his book, The Pilgrim's Regress, which I would, I would encourage you to read because it's really good, but it's not the easiest thing in the world to read. And what he's doing in that book is he's taking, what, is, what title does that sound like? Oh, right, which is by 
Yes, good. Yay. You didn't know Feuerbach, but you knew that. That was really good. <laughs> Much better to know John Bunyan than Feuerbach. So Pilgrim's Regress is based off of Pilgrim's Progress, and it's a story, an allegory about Lewis's own conversion. But it's a little um, academic in its tone. And one of the great stories from, I think I've told you, my friend um, Lady Catherwood was one of Lewis's early students at Oxford. And part of uh, one of her early memories was being with her father, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher. And they were on an all-night ferry going to Northern Ireland. And Lewis happened to be on the ferry with them. And it was in the early 1930s. And Pilgrim's Regress had just come out. And Lewis was very... Um, sad because it didn't really get a very good reception. People didn't really like it. Critics didn't like it. And Lloyd-Jones really, and Lewis said, I maybe should just give up this kind of Christian writing. And this was fairly early after Lewis's conversion, and Lloyd-Jones really encouraged him to stick with it. And um, his daughter uh, remembers that conversation and her dad kind of giving Lewis a pep talk about that. So it's nice to know that even Lewis needed pep talks from time to time. But if you look at the difference between that book and The Problem of Pain, which was written in 1940, you can see he has um, learned and is learning to communicate in a different way. And then that's followed by the Mere Christianity broadcast and the Screwtape Letters. And those are very accessible in terms of the vocabulary. Now, one thing I will say, I, I hope everybody in here will read Mere Christianity at some point, but please don't read it the way that I read it the first time. The first time I read that book, I'd heard from so many people how great it was, and I was like, I cannot wait. And so I blocked an entire Saturday to sit down and just read the whole book right through. And I got finished with it, and I was like, what? And the problem is, it's in some ways a simple book, but in other ways a very deep book. And we have to remember that each chapter was a radio broadcast and it had a week for you to digest it before you got to the next one. And that's really a much better way to approach that book, to read a little bit of it, think about it, and then come back and read some more. And it's even better to read it out loud because it was written to be delivered. So something to think about. But Lewis realized that it was important to learn to communicate in the vernacular, in the way that people could understand. And that's true for us as well. Most of us probably don't have the problem of being too intellectual for people to understand us. Uh, but we do have a lot of Christian lingo that we use, that people don't know what we're talking about. And when we lead with that, um, we sometimes lose the right to be heard. People just shut down. So one of the things that's interesting in, in your handouts, there's several handouts that I would commend to you. If you're on the beach, don't worry about them at all. If you are snorkeling, read the Christianity Today one, but don't read the other ones. But if you are scuba diving, read all of them because they're all really worth it. Um, this one I think is particularly interesting it's an address that Lewis gave at the end of World War II to a large gathering of Welsh youth leaders and pastors. And it's basically about how he believes 
people should approach sharing their faith. And it's a very, very <coughs> interesting article. And it's very interesting, too, about how you need to protect yourself so that your faith stays strong. It's, it's sort of how to share your faith, but also how to nurture your faith and make sure that you don't go off the deep end, uh, which is good. So uh, there are two main points out of that. The first one is to learn how to authentically connect. Part of that means learning how to ask good questions. Lewis was a genius at being able to ask good questions and making each person he talked to feel like that he or she was the center of the world and the only one that mattered. And the problem with most of us is that we think we're the center of the world and we want to talk about ourselves. And that doesn't work so well. So part of this is learning to make that shift to be other-centered and then to figure out if you were in that person's shoes, what are the things that are of interest or concern or issues for that person? And then ask questions about that. Um, those kinds of bridge building things are hugely, hugely, hugely important, particularly in a culture now where people have a prejudice against Christians. And the second thing is to translate things so that they can be unpacked, so that you're able to talk about meaning and purpose and things like that in a way that people will be able to understand. You don't want to talk about eschatology or um, atonement or transubstantiation or you know that that's not where you need to go when you're sharing your faith um, one of the best uh, quotations and I can never remember who said this is that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread and Lewis I think would have heartily approved of that image so that's that's kind of the mindset we need to have and the other thing that Lewis is so brilliant about and that some of these articles uh, help uh, explain a little bit is that a lot of people, when they think about apologetics, they think about a logical argument that's based entirely on didactic kind of reasoning. Whereas Lewis really didn't do that. He used a lot of story. He made people want Christianity to be true by portraying the values of Christianity. And then he helped show them how when you adopt the Christian point of view, all sorts of things that don't make sense in the world and in your life suddenly fall into this framework where it all makes sense. And then, and only then, would he give you the intellectual and evidentiary backup to help understand the whys of these things. So mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is a work of genius. Uh, one of the things that is remarkable about it is that, and I think I've mentioned this in here before, that it is still regularly voted in polls of people who should know uh, to be the most influential Christian book of the past hundred years. And that's a remarkable thing, that this was written in another country um, 60, 70 years ago, and it still is the most influential Christian book. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One, Austin Ferrer, uh, who's a name that I would love for you to become familiar with. A lot of people think Austin Ferrer is the greatest English theologian of the 20th century. He was the warden of Keeble College at Oxford, which is sort of the Anglo-Catholic college 
Um, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant author and became one of Lewis's very best friends in the later years of Lewis's life. Um, so he and Roger Green, um, who we talked about earlier, are the ones who, along with their wives, went to Greece with Lewis and his wife right before she died. But one of the things Ferris says is Lewis makes us think we are listening to an argument, whereas in reality we are presented with a vision, and it is the vision that carries conviction. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mere Christianity is very logical, but there is a vision that he paints in that book about how reality is structured. And it's not a vision that's drawn out of biblical sources or proof texting or anything like that. He just looks at human experience about what is it like to be a human being. And through that, he creates this vision that's very compelling. One of the other things that's interesting about it is that it is um, composed of these short little chapters. And that's what's deceptive about it because they're short, but they're not simple. They are profound. And each one of them is about something that's profound, and they build on each other. But that's part of what's cool about it. And then one of the things Lewis does is he uses this word clue a lot. So if you have a clue, what do you use clues for? To find something. Yes, a clue is like something that's been left. If you're on a scavenger hunt, a clue is something that's left that tells you how to get to the next thing. And Lewis constructs mere Christianity with a lot of clues. And even in the first chapter, he uses the word clue, right and wrong, as a clue to the meaning of the universe. So that's very important. And part of what's nice about that is it makes you, it puts the author and the reader kind of on the same side of the table, that they're on a quest together rather than one person trying to dump their truth on the other one which is sometimes the way that we feel when we're talking to people. But it's more a quest together. And in this, uh, he talks about the moral law. And what he means by that is just the idea that there are certain things that people think are right and wrong. And we may see that there are some differences about that, but at core, even now, even in our culture today, fragmented as it is, there's still a lot of agreement about some things being right and some things being wrong. And part of Lewis's point is you can't say something's right or wrong unless there's some sort of standard by which you're judging. But he also talks about the argument from desire. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And remember way back when we were talking about Zainzucht and longing and all of that, uh, that Lewis says we have all of these longings. We are creatures that are full of longings. And that for those longings, there's something that exists to satisfy them. If we're longing for water because we're so thirsty, there's water. And when you drink it, it's glorious. But then after you've had enough, you don't need anymore because that desire is satisfied. There's food. There's sex. There's all of these things that respond to our desires. But he said we also have this longing for meaning and purpose and eternal significance. And he says, because we have that longing, there must be something to fulfill that. It's the way that we're wired. So we need to look for what that is. So the other thing that he talks about is the idea of resonance between a theory and the way things actually are. And we, we talked about this earlier as well. Uh, it's sort of the idea of trying something on 
like a new pair of glasses or lenses and seeing what brings everything into focus. And that probably the thing that brings everything into focus the best might be the thing that you want to choose to investigate at a deeper level. And then of course that wonderful quotation that uh, we started off with in the very first class, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That Lewis's view of Christianity and why it's so important is that it opens your eyes to be able to perceive everything in God's creation, everything in the world as related to your faith. That there's not like this little compartment over here that's my faith self and then all my secular self over here. That it's this thing that transcends all of it. So reason is part of uh, apologetics. And Lewis was a firm believer in that. He founded the Socratic Club at Oxford, which was a debate society uh, where he debated all the major atheists of the day, debated not only the Christian faith, but Christian responses to different issues. And uh, one of the quotations that's often used from a newspaper then uh, back in the 1940s from Oxford was that great crowds would come to the Socratic Club to see whoever was brave enough to go up against Lewis and then to watch Lewis mop the floor <laughs> um, and just dismantling all of the other ideas. But part of the idea that Lewis also understood is that reason alone is not enough. That reason alone can be dry. It doesn't engage your soul. It might engage your mind, but it doesn't engage your soul. And so it's important to go beyond that, what he called glib and shallow rationalism. And that when you're starting to look at the meaning of life, your imagination is important as well. So part of the idea is that reason can help point you in the right direction, but it won't experientially ever bring you there. It's like reading facts may help inform you, but it's not gonna stir your soul. You could look at that piece of music that was the RAF march, and you could look at it, and if you were a musician, you might even be able to figure out the beat and everything else. But that is a very different thing than being standing out on a beautiful spring morning, and the RAF band comes marching by playing that. It's very different. And that first, just looking at the music is like reason. That's as far as it'll get you. But your imagination and your soul are the things that will help it to resonate within you. So mere Christianity brings these arguments from common human experience. And the idea is that it shows that faith is reasonable and not irrational. And that is a really, really important thing today. I don't know how many of you know very much about the new atheism or have read a lot of books um, by Dawkins and... Um, well, there are just a whole bunch of them. A lot of them are English, but it's a really interesting uh, phenomenon because it is a very virulent form of atheism. And it doesn't just say, well, it's okay if you're a Christian and it's okay if I'm an atheist. It's like, if you're a Christian, that's evil, it's toxic, and it should be banned. That people who are Christians are evil, 
And they wouldn't use these terms, but that's, that's essentially what it boils down to, and that you're stupid to boot. So, uh, and the problem is faculty in universities and schools, by and large, subscribe to the atheistic point of view. And so students are in this fire hydrant of this just coming at them all the time, and they don't know any better. It's kind of like, have you seen those commercials about all of the TV doctors um, that are dressed up as doctors, and then they're saying, we don't really know what we're talking about, but we're advertising this drug anyway. Um, it's sort of the same thing. You, you have teachers that know nothing about any of this, have never had a philosophy or religion course or a faith experience, telling people how absolutely stupid it is if you are a Christian. Well, if you don't have some pushback coming from somewhere, these students are going to believe that. And they don't, students, I was talking to a student the other day who was just absolutely shocked, I mean, blown out of the water to know that one of the foremost astronomers in the United States that was the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard and was the Smithsonian's head astronomer was a deep, deeply committed Christian. And she's like, he's a scientist and he's a Christian? I was like, yeah. And I said, one of the major guys in computer science at MIT that's in the department chair is a deeply committed Christian. She's like, what? You know, they have no idea because they have bought into this cultural thing that you see everywhere that Christians are stupid. So part of the reason we need to all become apologists is to help people understand that that is not true. And just another example of this is what people are told about scripture. Most people are taught that scripture is utterly unreliable, that it has been proven that there are all sorts of mistakes and contradictions that if the manuscripts were lost and that they're copying errors and you cannot believe anything that is in the Bible and the manuscript evidence for it is terrible and it's just a bunch of stories that are made up. Well, that from a scholarly standpoint is absolutely ludicrous. And I won't go into a whole long thing about this, but just for example, for Plato, whom we've been talking about, Plato is the foundation of the entire field of philosophy in universities around the world. There are fewer than 100 authenticated ancient manuscripts of Plato's Republic. Fewer than 100. But no one questions anything about that. Whereas with the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, just take a guess how many authenticated ancient manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts there are. 400,000. No, not that many. <laughs> A lot, yes. 25,000. So it's not 400,000, but it's 25,000. And yeah, I would, used to do this exercise when I was teaching where I would have uh, different stacks of blocks representing how many manuscripts there were and one was how many manuscripts of authenticated original manuscripts of Shakespeare, one of Shakespeare's works, Plato, Caesar's Gallic Wars, um, the New Testament, and one or two other things. And all of them are less than 100. Most of them are fewer than 20. And then you get to the New Testament, there are 25,000. So 
this is one of the reasons we need to push back a little bit. Um, they're all over the place. Oddly, a lot of the most ancient manuscripts are in Dublin, Ireland, in the Chester Beatty Library, which if you ever have the opportunity, you should go. Um, the Vatican also has a huge collection. The British Museum has a huge collection. Yeah? Is that because monasteries sequestered during the Dark Ages? That's part of it. The other part of it is that Chester Beatty had a lot of money, and um, in the 19th century, he went around, went around buying up manuscripts from everybody. Uh, but it, you, know, you wouldn't think a manuscript museum would be that interesting, but it's, it's really fascinating. So you should go. Are they pretty much all the same? Like, even Plato's 100 and the Greek Testaments, are the translation or copies the same? Yes, yes. And the other thing that people don't realize is that most of you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the 1940s. Uh, and when they found them, there were manuscripts of, for example, the Book of Kings and the Old Testament, which is a long book that's got all kinds of weird names and places and all that kind of stuff. And when they found those manuscripts, those manuscripts were a thousand years older than the manuscripts on which the translations of the Bible were based. And so a lot of the atheistic scholars are like, well, this is going to prove it. It's going to show that these things say nothing like what they used to. And when they compared them, it's something like 99.7% accuracy. And most of the things that are different are things like the English spelling of honor with a U versus the American spelling. So the manuscript evidence is really remarkable. Yes? Did you say that when these kids came to the colleges and met with the atheist professor who was atheist, that they had no defenses with which to... Well, what kind of homes did they come from? Did they not come from Christian backgrounds where they'd been brought up? I think a lot of parents just don't ever talk about it with their children. And yeah, they may have been brought up to say this is true, this is what we believe, but they don't have any tools to be able to argue it, which is really unfortunate so all right we're going to watch something that uh, just a little clip of that i'm gonna if you are uh snorkeling or scuba diving please do this for homework uh go home go to youtube and find c.s lewis doodle okay and we're going to watch just a little bit of c.s lewis doodle <coughs> And this is a C.S. Lewis doodle of the first chapter of Mere Christianity. Except I'm going to try to figure out why the sound is not working. Well, even if the sound doesn't work, you can, there it is.
Wenn die Haare bis der Timotin lange skandiert wird. Tonight, the BBC presents the first in a series of talks called Right and Wrong, a clue to the meaning of the universe by C.S. Lewis. This talk is titled Common Decency. And now, Mr. Lewis. Good evening. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds very unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like this. How do you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove him first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. And children as well as grown-ups. Now what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about it. And the other man very seldom replies to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he's been doing doesn't really go against the standard. Or that if it does, there is some special excuse. He pretends there is some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first shouldn't keep it or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law, or rule of fair play, or decent behaviour, or morality, or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agreed. And they have. If they hadn't, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they couldn't quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong, and there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there'd be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there are some agreement about the rules of football. Now, this law or rule about right and wrong used to be called the law of nature. Nowadays, when we talk of the laws of nature, we usually mean things like gravitation or heredity or the laws of chemistry. When older thinkers called the law of right and wrong the law of nature, they really meant the law of human nature. The idea was that just as falling stones are governed by the law of gravitation and chemicals by chemical laws, so the creature called man also had his law. With this great difference, that the stone couldn't choose whether it obeyed the law of gravitation or not, but a man could choose either to obey the law of human nature or to disobey it. So... Uh, that gives you a little bit of a clue about what mere Christianity is like. Um, the doodle guy does a really good job with it. So um, I was very dubious when somebody first told me about that. But um, 
I have been through it and discovered that it actually is pretty good. So, all right. So, just quickly, um, this marriage of reason and imagination is part of what makes Lewis's approach to apologetics so important for our age. And one of the things that's so interesting is that hardly ever before Lewis could you find an apologist that did this. You had people who were storytellers, who were authors, uh, who might write even fantasy like George MacDonald, but you didn't find people that combined the two in the way that Lewis does. And part of the reason that that is important is that it works in a way that is conducive to communication and the culture that we find ourselves in today. A lot of people don't want to listen to a rational argument. A lot of people think they know what Christians believe. But if you can expose them to a story that is compelling, you will suddenly earn the right to be heard. It's just like with these Lord of the Rings movies um, at the music hall. There are a lot of people that are coming to these things. They're not coming because they're Christians, but they're drawn to that story. And if you know the story, and then you talk to the people who aren't Christians who are there, you automatically have a bridge uh, that you can cross. So one of the interesting things about Lewis that helps in this whole process is he has a remarkable gift for analogy. And there was a comparison done of a couple of sort of basic Christianity books, one being Mere Christianity, another one being Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, John Stott's Basic Christianity, uh, Bishop Wright's Simply Christian. And Lewis has something like 400% more analogy than any of the other books. And so it helps you to be able to relate to it. So just in closing, um, there are some books back there that I would commend to you if you want to uh, order some books that will help you grow in defending your faith. Um, I would encourage you to investigate the evidence. Uh, there's a great book called Who Moved to the Stone back there that's about the resurrection. Um, things like this can really bolster your own faith and make you more enthusiastic about sharing it. Um, praying for it and building the friendships and having the conversations. Because as we said earlier, there's not anybody else who's going to do it. We are the ones that have the truth of the gospel. And with that comes the responsibility to be apologist. So let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that your truth does not change from generation to generation. We thank you that your kingdom is unshakable. Lord, we thank you that you are the source of all truth and goodness and beauty. I pray that you would equip us to be able to share that faith with those who so desperately need it in this hurting world. I pray you would help each one of us to take at least one step in that direction in the coming week. And we thank you for this time tonight and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.